there are things that we can do as like individual citizens. So we, we can make choices about, you know, our lifestyles and the things that we buy and the things that we do and how we travel and so on. Um, and then, and then sometimes people will criticize and say, well, you're only a tiny little part of a mission. So why does that really matter? And, and I think that's where it's, it links up with the, how you might understand the world if you, you know, through the eyes of a social scientist where, Actually, what, what I do, might, might, it might affect you tomorrow. I don't know. It might, you might forget all about this. And what you say to me tonight might affect me as well. And, and so we're not individuals, as in we operate completely in a silo. You know, we interact with each other. We talk to each other about issues and we have an influence on each other. We talk about the fact that high school students don't normally talk about climate change in their own school. So our aim is in producing this podcast is to promote conversation about climate change among family and friends, uh, specifically between young people who are the future of climate action. My name is Gabriel Gitterdance. I'm a senior at Hunter College High School, and I live in Manhattan. My name is Adam Rudd. I'm also a senior at Hunter College High School, and I live three blocks away from Gabriel in Manhattan. Um, my name is Kevin Zhao, and I'm also a senior at Hunter College High School, and I live in Queens. So on today's episode, we would like to welcome Dr. Alice Larkin. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, yes. Yeah, so my name is Alice Larkin. Uh, I'm a professor of climate science and energy policy at the University of Manchester in England in the United Kingdom. Um, and yeah, I'm also part of the, the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research. So I've been a researcher there since 2003. Uh, and then my, my main day job at the moment is a head of School of Engineering here at the University of Manchester. Yeah, we're super, we're super excited to have you. Uh, we've done like a good amount of uh, looking at some of your talks online. And, and uh, I think Richard, Richard our, our like handler, said that if there's anyone to talk to right now in this time, like the best person in the world to talk to is you. So we're oh, really excited. That's nice. <laughs> so today we'll just be talking about... Um, a variety of topics, including um, Dr. Larkin's research, including her work on aviation and shipping, the energy, food, and water nexus, and emission budgets. So just to start off with a base question, what are you currently working on? Um, well, I, I get a bit a limited time on research at the moment, but the, the area that there are two researchers that I'm working with um, on shipping, uh, is, which is kind of exciting at the moment. So one of the PhD researchers is looking at wind propulsion for shipping, which sounds a little weird because in a way, because it feels like you're going backwards, but actually kind of high tech wind propulsion to decarbonize the shipping sector. And the other researcher, PhD researcher is also looking at shipping and looking at, um, you know, whether there's an opportunity for shore power for ships. So when, you know, when ships come into port and they need to uh, stick around for quite a long time and they use quite a lot of energy, just while they're in port, is there, are there options for, uh, for them basically plugging in? It's called cold ironing. Uh, and if they plug in, could they plug into renewable energy while they're there? Um, but the work, one of the, the nice pieces of work that this, this person has also done that we've worked on on a nice paper was, was actually looking at some of the timeframes for, um, you know, for, for achieving things like the, the Paris Climate Agreement. So how quickly you need to reduce emissions by. What, what does that mean for a sector like shipping? 
which is one of those sectors that not a lot of people don't think about. I mean, of course, the UK is an island, so you'd think we'd, we'd think about it a lot, but, but you know, it's not really in the consciousness, like aviation is very much in our, our public consciousness. Um, but trying to look at, um, you know, if we had to, if, if the shipping sector had to meet the, the Paris Climate Agreement and had to change as much as other sectors, um, you know, what does it need to do? And one of the things that we found was that actually... Uh, a lot of a lot of times we think about new technologies and new stuff that can happen, you know, in 20 or 30 years time. But because ships last a really long time, basically the ships that we have now, we need to work out how to retrofit them and decarbonize them. So, you know, we can't just rely on building new ships with all the new technologies. Um, and we can't also just rely on new zero carbon fuels because that's going to take quite a long time. So, so I guess one of my main areas that I've focused on for years is is just the is the kind of time frame to change to make the changes and how that needs to be really rapid and that changes what you might do so you can't just rely on you know huge infrastructure pro projects because they take ages to come to fruition how how bad are ships like compared to to planes just in in this context well it's it's really difficult to make kind of direct comparison as I, I, I guess you could imagine because you know like measuring the, the carbon uh, per person for a plane compared to per person for a ship. You know, you're not, you're not moving around passengers in the same way as you, you know, you're using air travel for largely for passenger transport and you're using ships mainly for freight. Um, and actually in terms of um, how efficient ships are, they are, they're very energy efficient. They're pretty carbon efficient as well. And um, the, the challenge is, is that they, they, they go a really long way. <laughs> There's a lot of them and they're really big. Um, so, so when you think about sort of the different kinds of activities that we do in terms of uh, carbon intensity, you know, aviation is going to come out top, you know, you, you're, you're the carbon intensity of your flying. So, you know, as an individual, the, the kind of worst thing you can do basically um, is take a long flight. Um, so ship, shipping is a lot more complicated than that because, you know, you're transporting a lot of your freight around. The, the difficulty is that these, it's like any sector where uh, the technology or the, the infrastructure lasts a long time. That's where we have this, this, this problem. Um, so if you imagine that if you, uh, if you have a car, then you tend to kind of change it. You know, maybe you, you might have a new car, then you might change it, might upgrade it in five years or 10 years or something. Um, and typically you won't you won't have that car sticking around for like you know more than 10 years or so um, and if you're you know if you bought a ship then that is going to last a lot longer than that that's going to and, and the same for planes you know they last an awfully long time so that so that's the kind of like they often get grouped together aviation and shipping uh, partly because they 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 last a long time but one of the main reasons is because um, they are they they operate internationally which is kind of an obvious thing to say, but it means that if you're a if you're a policymaker in a particular country like the UK and you want to do something about aviation, then uh, then you don't well you you in, under the Kyoto Protocol and also under the Paris Climate Agreement, you're only responsible for the uh, the domestic aviation and your inland shipping. Whereas uh, you know clearly the you know a flight between Manchester and New York is. Uh, you know, like you'd share, you'd, you, in some ways you need to share it out between those, those two places. But actually what happens is they're governed by international agreements and that, that applies to shipping and aviation. So they're, so they're similar in that way, but then they're different in pretty much every other way, I would say. Um, so at the end there, you kind of mentioned like how different countries have to collaborate um, 
in order to make an agreement on aviation. Would you say this has happened successfully? Like, have there been recent agreements that have been effective? There hasn't, there hasn't really been a great deal of, um, like, you, you know, multilateral kind of agreement on aviation. Rather, that it's governed by the, the International Civil Aviation Organization. So they were asked, this is like a, an international organization, and they, they were given the mandate by the United Nations to, to deal with international aviation. So rather than, say, the United States and the United Kingdom having some sort of agreement to do something about, about international aviation, that hasn't happened. You know, we haven't got those agreements between countries. Um, but instead, the International Aviation, uh, Civil Aviation Organization um, ha- has, um, well, has not really put in place the kind of measures that we would need to decarbonize aviation in line with something like the Paris Climate Agreement. So they... They have said that they, they put together policies. So one of the latest uh, things that they, they do, they look at and is called Corsia, which is like carbon offsetting scheme. Um, so they would prefer countries not to actually do something about aviation individually, but they'd rather manage it themselves. Um, but the measures that they then agree with their kind of, um, well, with the industry, basically with the industry players, um, have either been, well, to date have been voluntary, um, they've also been things like offsetting. Um, they are keen to, to work on energy efficiency, of course, and support energy efficiency measures. But that makes sense anyway, because, you know, one of the big costs for any air, airline is the fuel. So if you can reduce the amount of fuel you, you need anyway, then it's going to cost you less. So energy efficiency has always been a big driver. Um, so, you know, I would say that they, they haven't the years they haven't done anywhere near enough to address the, the problem of, of aviation emissions. Um, and still now, even, you know, even, even getting different um, sort of groups together to under ICAO to try to come to some sort of uh, agreement on what should be done, you know, the carbon offsetting scheme and these other things, they're not going to get us down a track of really decarbonizing the sector like all the other sectors need to do so they really it's really pretty weak what what's uh, what's in place to kind of tackle aviation at the moment by by i know 2050 is a big a big target year so what what are some things that need to be done by 2050 you think well i would i would kind of push back on the 2050 thing a little bit so one of the things firstly i would just say is that we we focus a lot on like these kind of like long-term targets um and what that gives some people the impression of if they don't quite understand the kind of concept of, um, of greenhouse gas emissions and how they build up in the atmosphere is that it kind of sounds like we can, as long as we get the technology right by, say, 2045 or something, and then we put it in place, then we'll be OK. And that's not the issue. The issue is that the emissions accumulate over time. So it really matters what you do now, as well as, you know, by 2050, you need to be kind of like... you. you you know, where you're starting now, you need to be kind of bringing emissions down, which kind of sounds like an obvious point, but it isn't always understood in that way. Um, so I would talk about, you know, with there's, there's a big issue around equity and justice in this whole climate debate. So the wealthier countries where our per person per capita emissions are really high have got an awful lot more work to do than the, the poorer countries. And, and in the poorer countries, you know, development still needs to happen. And that might have to rely on on fossil fuels. So if you take that view, so actually, you know, there are differences between the different countries in terms of what they need to do, 
Now, I would say that, that a country like the UK and the United States, you know, we, we need to be cutting our emissions from our energy system. So that's from all of the supply side of energy and um, looking at energy efficiency, but across that whole system um, down to zero by around, I don't know, 20, about 2040, I would say. Um, and that's a huge ask. And that's a huge ask, particularly for sectors that are quite difficult to decarbonize, like aviation and shipping. But, but part of the reason why you need that from your energy system is because you're still going to have greenhouse gas emissions from the food system as well that are going to sort of remain in the atmosphere. Um, and they are even, some of those are even harder to reduce. And clearly we all need to eat. And, you know, around the world, population is growing, people are eating better, and that's a good thing. But the point is that the, you know, even organic practice and so on, you're still going to be producing nitrous oxide, which is going to be a greenhouse gas. And so there's a certain amount of emissions that we're going to have to leave in the atmosphere. And that means you've got to do more on the sectors that you can reduce the emissions from. So like electricity, car transport, and so on. Um, yeah, and kind of a follow up from that in terms of how this like reduction is actually going to happen. Um, you're quoted, we saw a New York Times article that you said, um, in my idea, people move first rather than like governments. So what do you think is kind of the role of, um, people in terms of like the culture that needs to be changed? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it's a, that's a really good question and it and I think it's quite difficult to to you know to be correct about it I mean you know I I've learned an awful lot from my my colleagues who are social scientists and I'm not a social scientist myself um but what it seems to me to be is that there are, there are a number of different things so there are there are things that we can do as like individual citizens so we we can make choices about you know our lifestyles and the things that we buy and the things that we do and how we travel and so on um and then and then sometimes people will criticize and say well you're only a tiny little part of a mission so why does that really matter and and i think that's where it's it links up with the how you might understand the world if you you know through the eyes of a social scientist where Actually, what, what I do, might, might, it might affect you tomorrow. I don't know. It might, you might forget all about this. And what you say to me tonight might affect me as well. And, and so we're not individuals, as in we operate completely in a silo. You know, we interact with each other. We talk to each other about issues and we have an influence on each other. Um, and clearly, like things like the climate movement, they, they start and they, and they build because people talk to each other and they discuss the issues. And not, of course, not everybody will agree on everything that needs to be done. Um, but you you share your learning and and you know different people will be interested in different parts of that and you share that. I think there's also a really important role for us to play either you know what in whatever realm we're in you know we have we have some sort of influence. So you know I'm very fortunate to be in a position now where um, you know within my school of engineering I, I get to sit on committees that that talk about you know I don't know deciding on uh, on who we're going to employ or what research we might invest in and so on and I can have some sort of influence to to push that towards you know an important energy you know energy agenda or looking at the environment and so on and that's that's a big influence I have but you know the whole time that um I've I've worked in this and before you know when I was studying and so on I still have influence because you might you might influence like your supervisor or you might influence uh uh, you might be on a committee, like a student committee or something, and you get some choices or you get a little budget to do something with. 
And you can also, I don't know how your system works in, in the US, but you know, here we can write to our members of parliament and that actually has quite a big, can have quite a big impact. You know, if, if they're getting the same message from lots of different people and they're saying, look, you know, we think, I don't know, we think onshore wind turbines are a really good idea and, and we really wish you would push forward and be more bold, then, then they can take more difficult decisions. But if, if we just sit back and we're like, we sort of give the impression that we're not very interested, I think that the, the politicians and the people who have to make difficult decisions and invest money in the right places, um, they don't know whether we're behind them or not. They don't know whether we'll vote for them again if, if they come up for election. So they might not, they might not make those difficult decisions. And, and it's difficult. It is difficult. It's not like, it's not like what we need to do to meet the Paris climate agreement is, is all easy and is all nice new sort of sparkly infrastructure and technology. You know, some of it is tough. And so we need our politicians to make difficult decisions. So I think that we have an influence and we have um, an opportunity to influence and, and you just do it in different ways all the way through your life. And you just need to take your opportunities. So, I mean, yeah, it, it definitely sounds really difficult to, uh, you know, to be an active, I guess, like everyone can be a climate activist. It, it's, it sounds, it's, but it's really, really difficult. How do you suggest getting people to like take ownership of like how do you how do you get people to to write letters to to like feel some sort of attachment to the issue mm. when it seems so i guess far off or it seems like there's going to be one solution that's that's going to come into play later and save us all which is not true yeah uh, again i think it's a, it's a if we knew that if we knew the answer to that then i guess we wouldn't be in the, yeah. the situation that we're in I, I was hoping you might be able to help with that <laughs> how, how, how do you how do you like what what approach do you take when you try to talk to people uh like a normal person on the street or something like that yeah um i don't know i mean i've gone through kind of like waves of different things actually because at first when i first joined the tyndall center um, you know, I was really excited by the energy that was there and people talking to each other about um, about climate change and about what they did in their lives and so on. And people spoke a lot. But then when I found when I spoke with my family or or friends who are just not it's just not in their world, um, it would actually sometimes find that quite difficult. And and then I so then I sort of stopped talking to immediate friends and family because you don't necessarily want to get into arguments with people about stuff. Um, and then, and then I found that people would want to talk to me about it when I didn't really want to talk about it. So uh, one of the things that used to happen to me, particularly when I worked on aviation, was people wanted to almost like confess their flights to me. So like they'd say, hey, Alice, oh, you're going to be really cross with me because I took a flight to Costa Rica or something. And I'm like, I don't, you know, why, why are you telling me? <laughs> you know, I can't do anything about that. You took the flight. Um, and, and what you don't want to do is you don't, I mean, this is just my personal view. I would rather not not make somebody angry about it. I'd rather try to understand. Okay, well, you know, what? Why is it? Why? You know, why did you do that? Or why? You know, are there are there other things that you might do next year that might be different? Or just trying to like get people just maybe to just reflect a little bit, but without without being uh, antagonisticness. I mean, particularly with, with people who haven't really thought about it before, because there's an awful lot of people in the world who just do not think about climate change, whereas it's my whole world. So, you know, you have to be really careful not to, to really put people off when you're, when you're talking to people. 
Um, and also, I think people don't, I mean, other people would argue with me about this, but I don't think people like to feel uh, guilty about things. If they've never thought about it before, I think the first stage is just to start thinking about it and maybe build a, a bit of an awareness of, well, you know, flying is much worse than driving in an electric car or, you know, just making some comparisons for people, even if that's like, you know, just, just a little starting step. Um, because the other thing that you find in my, in my kind of, well, I found over the years is you get asked to do talks, but very often the people you're talking to, they already kind of like, like to, they're already interested in climate change, if that makes sense. And actually the much more difficult uh, meetings would be if I went to like an aviation industry meeting or a shipping industry meeting and talking about climate change. Um, and, and in that kind of audience, I think you just need to be really direct and stick to the science and just say that this, this is a really big problem. This is why it's, you know, a bad thing at the moment, but we need to move forwards and, and just try to kind of like show a pathway out of it rather than just focusing on the problem. I think you, you have to provide people with solutions, I think. So in talking to people, have you ever come across uh, a climate denier who is someone who just like outright doesn't believe in it? Um, yeah, but it must be a very long time ago actually now. Um, I mean, there were many more people Previous, you know, when I started working on it in 2003, I would say there were a lot more climate deniers around in the UK then. What you, you don't come across that very often now. What you're more likely to come across in the UK at least, and I obviously can't speak for, for everywhere else, are people who, who understand that climate change is a problem, who also understand that it's a human created problem, but they think that the solutions um are just like that we will we won't we don't need to actually reduce energy consumption and we don't need to decarbonize things we'll just be able to to just deal with the impacts and just you know just deal with the consequences um so i think you come across that more now than the kind of denier i would say in the uk it's quite unusual now to come across climate deniers i don't know what it's like in the united states but it's not very common now so what you said there about like preparing for the impacts of climate change. Um, and I know you mentioned before how different like wealthier countries are more responsible um, for the problems. Like I assume there would be a big disparity in like the ability to defend against the effects of climate change. Yeah. Um, so like, how does this kind of come into play? Yeah. I mean, Unfortunately, the, the places that are kind of responsible for most of the cause of the climate change uh, impacts that we're seeing now are also the places that uh, can deal with the problem. Um, you know, they have the, the money, the infrastructure um, to, to deal with it within their own countries. But the places that are really impacted are those places that just don't have that infrastructure, don't have the money. Um, and so, you know, I think it it's... And often they have some of the more extreme weather events, although I, you know, I'm saying that and I'm thinking now about the United States and I guess, you know, you have much more extreme weather events than we do in the United Kingdom where our weather is kind of, it's not very exciting. Whereas I guess you, you have these, these more extreme like storms and so on. And, and that's certainly something that, you know, we're seeing stronger impacts of those kind of storms. But, but then when, when they hit in a wealthier country, uh, generally there will be fewer deaths, there will be more rapid infrastructure improvement and there will be insurance and that kind of thing. When they hit in a poorer country, 
you know, it's it's a lot more a lot more people will lose their lives, but you may well have your whole livelihoods devastated forever. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people who would be impacted like that in in wealthier countries, because clearly, uh, you know, the uh, Hurricane Katrina was a, an example of that, where you know there were many people who were really terribly affected. But again, they would typically be the poorer end of society that were really badly affected. So, you know, this issue of wealth. Um, it's 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 really clear in climate change that um, you know the wealthy produce the emissions and the poorer suffer the consequences. There is that that quite big divide, which means that it becomes it seems to become quite political because then you know the kind of ways in which you might address that or talk about it then appear to be coming from particular points of view when actually all, all it is is just identifying that. You know, emissions come from high energy use and therefore from wealthier parts of society. And then clearly, like you were saying, that, you know, if you've not got the infrastructure, if you've not got um, uh, money to spend on protecting people with flood defences and that kind of thing, then clearly those people are going to be the ones suffering the consequences. Um, and, and, the, and the range of impacts is, is very great, of course. So it's not just about storms and extreme weather, but, you know, you've got your droughts and, and wildfires which I guess for you guys that must have been you know that's been something that is you know been a lot of the media and, and I understand you know is has been a really difficult year this year and um you know that's not something that we typically get in the United Kingdom so different places will be suffering the different impacts of course. We had uh, I think it was our second episode we had Professor Radley Horton from from Columbia and he, he talked about uh his research on wet bulb temperature my stab at it would be the air getting to a dangerously humid but also very hot like temperature so so, so like the the problem with with having high wet bulb temperature is that it, it increases like probability of heat stroke and other uh like heart conditions and it also it also brought in a lot of socioeconomic factors where countries that didn't have the infrastructure to for example just have like air conditioning were um yeah. like people there are much more likely to to suffer from uh the effects of these emissions yeah sure and and you know it's also the the sort of irony irony that if you um you know as, as countries become more wealthy and then people have the access to uh, things like air conditioning units but then as those temperatures go up then you're using more air conditioning which is using more energy and which is making it worse again and yeah it's um yeah really difficult to see how you know how we get out of that that kind of loop and um, and actually, you know, design design buildings so that they don't actually require either heating or cooling, you know, get a passive house kind of design, um, which also helps with things like, uh, comes back to the issue of, of, of poverty again, because if you can, you know, have a home where people don't need to fuel, you know, to buy the fuel, then that helps with things like fuel poverty, which in the United Kingdom, that's a really big problem. Um, you know, people don't, a lot of people don't have enough money to, to actually heat their homes and if you didn't have to heat it then that would be much better as well. Thank you for listening to the first part of our talk with Dr. Larkin and make sure to tune into the second episode we'll be releasing with her in the future in which we get to talk about how a climate high school education could be built.